Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. This is your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, I'm doing my best to curate the information that you hear. I seek the world's greatest experts in everything from muscle building, health optimization, nutrition, biochemistry, mindset optimization. You guys get it. I'm literally seeking the greatest people in the world. And I love doing it. And hopefully you guys have enjoyed the podcast this far. I know I've loved doing it. And today's podcast is one of my favorites that I've done since the beginning, whether it be Muscle Intelligence or even when I was doing the Muscle Expert podcast. This is absolutely one of my favorite conversations I've had. I had the absolute pleasure to sit down with Merrick Doyle at the Health Optimization Summit in London, England, and just had my mind absolutely blown with his incredible understanding of nutrition and biochemistry and really how to take an objective view at you know what your body actually needs to thrive and this is an incredible conversation i truly suggest you get a pen and maybe take a note on how to begin approaching nutrition in an unbiased way that's non-dogmatic at all and truthfully just looking objectively at what your body does and what it needs and how you can match your nutrition to your DNA and your lifestyle and your stress and your training and most importantly, perhaps your goal. And you guys are going to absolutely love this, uh, hopefully as much as I did. And if you do, I know Merrick would love to hear from you on Instagram or Twitter. So without further rambling for me, I hope you guys love my conversation with Merrick Doyle. This podcast is brought to you by my favorite fresh pressed olive oil. If you guys haven't tried it, this is your last chance to get it for a dollar. You get a whole 500 ml bottle for one buck. Can't beat that. It's incredible. Join the list. Get Fresh 3.5 is where you can find that. And that gets my highest review. I hope you guys get to enjoy it, particularly people in North America. I don't truthfully know if they ship outside of North America. And if they don't, I apologize. But uh, if they do, uh, if you're in North America, I highly suggest you capitalize on this $1 offer for olive oil, fresh pressed. You're going to love it. Enjoy the show. So we're sitting here in sunny London, England. Is that a funny statement? Well, it happens from time to time. And today's the day, so... <laughs> we got lucky. We literally... The sun shines on the righteous. That's right. And Merrick's already expecting tomorrow to be the rainy day. Most people are, I think. <laughs> we'll um, have to just wait and see and deal with the cards that we're dealt. Right. Merrick, you come with a very strong reputation on actually helping people get healthy. So it's exciting to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me. How do you do it? Is that a good segue into a conversation? <laughs> Tell me everything you do in one hour or How less. long do we have? So, so you've, everything you've done in the last 20 years, I need you to condense it into 60 minutes. And you just actually admit you did it in 52. So <laughs> we can do it. So Merrick just presented at the Health Optimization Summit and spoke about, I'll let you introduce it because you do a better job than me. So I called the presentation, the adrenal immune cycle. It was a... What does that mean? So the name, I think... I. I could have called it one of many different things. Mm -hmm. The ongoing self-perpetuating cycles that occur once a important organ system falls down and drags the others with it. That didn't really fit into, right, the, into the, the word count that we had. The captivating title. No, it, it was not considered captivating. So, uh, the focus is very much on why people don't get the results that they should. 
So when you say results, it's just specific to maybe adrenal fatigue, specific to immune response. So yeah. So some people come to me because they can't lose weight and they want to lose weight. Some people have terrible sleep and they want to deal with that. A lot of the work I do now is chronic fatigue. Mm -hmm. So I accidentally ended up specializing in chronic fatigue and the complex metabolic problems and When I did a survey in 2014, it turned out the average number of practitioners people had seen before me was seven and a half. So it's typically- I believe that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, it turned out that it was, uh, yeah, a lot of individuals who just aren't responding the way they should. And uh, in all cases, the starting point was often them asking me, well, what do you think it is? Is it this? Is it adrenal fatigue? Or is it my thyroid? I know what it is. It's, it's candida, right? That's what we got to kill. And my job has mainly been to explain to them, well, actually, you can't have any problems occur in isolation. If one major system is going to go wrong, for example, the adrenals, well, that's instantly and automatically going to impact on thyroid metabolism, but also our digestive investment, our central nervous system, our mitochondria, there's inflammatory control. And so, well, what if there's already strains on those particular organ systems? John may well now develop thyroid issues and maybe that's when he suddenly starts to fall off that cliff and then he comes to see me. Or what if Julie now actually starts to suffer eczema? So depending on our genetics, we're going to be vulnerable to certain things. Depending on the micronutrient status that we've got, we may well be very close to the edge of a cliff. And then it simply takes one additional stressor, for example, the adrenal cascade becoming dysfunctional, or maybe it's to do with a lack of folate and uh, our immune function alters. It could be a multitude of different things, but what we're going to see then is a whole host of problems occur, and some of which will simply make us more vulnerable to other symptoms. Mm-hmm. Others will actually directly manifest as symptoms, and my primary focus is is working out the the cause of the symptom, but sure. more importantly, the cause behind that cause. Yeah, or any of it is. We were just talking about this with Aubrey de Grey. People aren't aware or aren't willing to go do things that are preventative. People aren't willing to do the things that are optimizing their health. It's always like once, as you say, I've fallen off that cliff. Now it's neglected for the last three years to go, hey doc, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. They just wait until it's so bad that they can no longer cope. And now it's a health crisis rather Mm -hmm. than just some minor tweaks, right? Well, yeah. And I think that's that's human nature. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see that in so many different areas, whether it's dealing with an environmental crisis or whether it's actually having our children know a little bit more about politics so that they can make more informed decisions. Things need to get really bad before we actually are motivated enough to take action because until that point... It's not a priority. Yeah. there's other. Yeah. We've all got stuff to do and challenges in front of us that we need to get done today and then maybe tomorrow. I think it's it's important that many people like yourself are coming around and now and saying like, here's just daily best practices to not ever have that shit happen. I'd love to get there as well. But I want to start off the conversation with, you know, someone, John does walk into your office, John Doe, and he says, hey, this is happening. Is it testing predominantly? And what type of testing are you doing? So, 
anyone who comes to see me has to do the organic acids test. So that's a test I do through Great Pains Laboratory. Mm -hmm. They're on your side of the pond. Mm -hmm. And really great starting point. There's no perfect test, but this gives us- I've got my us, test on my phone. We should go through it. Well, we, we can definitely <laughs> we don't do want, that. We don't <laughs> want uh, but so it's, it's a great starting point because it allows us to determine very clearly without any doubt what is a problem, what's not a problem, and what might be a problem. So my question is how useful, I mean, obviously it sounds like you find it very useful, but how useful is it if it's only a snapshot of time? Have you ever tried to do- you know, weekly tests to see like how much it varies. Cause that's always my concern, right? It's like, yeah, this is a snapshot of what I look like right now. But if my diet changes over the next seven days, it could look completely different. My belief, is that correct or incorrect? So again, it depends on the test. Yeah. So there are absolutely, there's loads of markers for which I just wouldn't really be interested in testing. For example, serum levels of adrenaline would be a perfect example. Right. But as far They're as the organic acid change. test, right? So the organic acid, yeah. So in that instance, it is extremely helpful for driving results. So in that instance, I would almost take that question uh, and, and answer a different question, which does that concern appear to infringe on results? No. No, no, it no, doesn't. I so in that instance, it tells us, yeah, what is going on now? But right. of course, my job is to determine what's the reason for that result right. so and take the appropriate I don't action. want to be ignorant and assume that any listener has any idea what the organic acid test is. Can you just give us a layout of what we're looking at? I can. So that's a urinary test. You provide that a sample upon waking and send it to the lab. And after three and a half weeks, you get back the results of 73 different markers. So these are particular metabolites that the body produces as part of uh, various metabolic pathways. And they can give us an incredibly rich glimpse into neurotransmitter balance, mitochondrial function, the conditions in the gut, whether you may be responding badly to certain food chemicals. They'll also give us idea as to your detox capacity, specifically in regards to your glutathione status, various B vitamin markers, some ideas of methylation status. So there's still plenty of other things that we can't extract from that, but it's something that allows me a fantastic platform to start solving these issues for the, for the individual because whilst it's not going to be very difficult for anybody to determine problems with energy production, mitochondrial issues, that's something we could see as experienced practitioners very, very easily. But how could I ever be able to tell the difference between a lack of CoQ10 versus a lack of carnitine versus a lack of B1 or B2? I wouldn't be able to do that because it would all manifest in symptoms in the same way. This allows me to know what blend of support does this individual need right now to feel better? And then I can also go one step backwards in regards to, well, why do I think that this occurred in the first place? If their diet's sufficient in these nutrients, and it generally is, then why are we seeing these shortages on the front line? So yeah, it, it's a fantastic starting point and that combined with a comprehensive screening, looking into the case history, sleep, digestion, lifestyle, any symptoms that we can start building a really detailed picture from the start. 
It's beautiful. And from my experience, having done organic acid three or four times now, it, it is a very reflective snapshot of what needs to be manipulated. I've, I've historically been very low in riboflavin. I bring the riboflavin up, I feel it's different, right? And that's a genetic predisposition that we've seen on my DNA. And that's what I find to be correlated, right? Is like you can usually predict once you learn what SNPs to look for. Like, hey, this person's getting like, so for me, it's always going to be methylation, riboflavin, magnesium. Those are three I just take daily to support optimized function. And I just learned that from my organic acid test. And, and if I don't take it for three weeks, those show back up. So you're, you're looking at it from this foundational level of health rather than treating symptoms, right? Yeah. And I think obviously there is a time and a place for dealing with symptoms, right. especially if those symptoms are stopping the individual from taking profound steps to dealing with the underlying causes. So yeah, I would refer to them as band-aids and I use band-aids all the time, but not ever as a replacement right. for what's going to really make the difference. Yeah, everyone's looking for like, hey, how can I improve my performance, right? Can I take testosterone? Can I take nootropics? What can I take to make me work better? But they haven't you know, laid the foundation of health. And, and that sounds like what your approach is? Yeah, very much so. Um, so, rather than trying to add something in that will squeeze that little bit more out, my first thoughts will always be, what obstacles can we remove mm -hmm. so that this incredibly complex machine, the human body, will simply work better? And that would always be my first point. I've never seen a single individual for whom they haven't been subject to some sort of obstacles. Yes, there's a sliding scale. And for some people, there's some relatively trivial obstacles that you remove and they'll feel better. But for the majority of people that I work with, there are some major obstacles obstacles, plural, that we're going to need to deal with. And it can be fairly difficult sometimes because of the more extreme steps that they're going to need to take to resolve them. But yeah, starting with the obstacles and removing them. I know it sounds obvious when I say it that way, no, but it may It should be, any, right? It, well, it should be. Yeah. Now, you're looking at 73 markers in the organic test. There's no way that it's as simple as going, oh, this one's really obvious. There's got to be, for many people, I'm sure they come back with like 50 or 60 things that are way skewed. How do you decide which ones to start with? Is that just purely experience? Like, I think these are going to be higher priorities. Well, I think that is mainly experience. I say mainly experience because I've conducted countless audits of my own results sure. over the last 13 years. So, that has been very helpful to confirm when I've been doing things in the right order. But also, sometimes it's flagged up surprising outcomes and made me realize that actually there's, there's a way that we can do this much more efficiently. In any case, I would always start with what I would call the low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. So, if there's anything stopping people from producing energy effectively, well, we've got to start there. Right. If there's anything that's stopping individuals from maintaining normal and healthy neural firing, we could start using more and more uh, polysyllabic terminology, but magnesium does an incredibly good job at allowing your NDA receptors to work the way that they should. And that means that they don't over-respond to glutamate. Brief segue. <laughs> so, glutamate and GABA, two primary neurotransmitters in the brain. In the cerebral cortex, they're responsible for over 70% of all firing. 
glutamate is the primary neurotransmitter that excites neurons. GABA is the primary neurotransmitter that inhibits neurons. And as you can imagine, we want the balance between the two. If you are super sensitive to any glutamate that exists, you are never going to have a fair chance of getting to sleep properly, filtering out irrelevant information. You're going to be constantly bombarded by potential stressors. And the impact on that physiology is so profound, it will block people from having any opportunity to progress. Bringing in magnesium in those instances, yes, it will do other things such as help with muscular relaxation, help with cellular hydration so that the water actually gets to your cells rather than go straight into your bladder. It will help in a multitude of other ways, including an anti-inflammatory effect, but the one most obvious difference I'm going to see with individuals is suddenly it's not that they no longer suffer from stress and stress-related issues, but their responses to those stresses are now appropriate. We are no longer amplifying their stress signals into their limbic system. So that's a perfect example of a really easy win at the start. And it just so happens that yeah. a lot of people are short on magnesium. Yeah, are, you, are you partial to any of the chelates, any particular one? To be honest, I haven't seen much of a difference between the good ones. So between the good ones, I'm looking at citrate, ascorbate, aspartate, taurate, or orotate. They're all really effective. I haven't necessarily seen one perform more than other. Obviously, magnesium oxide. Okay. It's good for one thing, which is the bin. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, beyond that, as long as people are getting decent amounts of magnesium and it's in a form that they can absorb, I haven't felt any need to change that. I haven't seen any differences on the statistical analysis. From so, so your two primary levers that you pull when you get a uh, organic acid test back are energy and neurotransmitter production. Um, again, it's difficult to say energy is just a, a very easy starting sure. point. If they're low on glutathione, for example, that would be a very key thing because well, as you well there, as or, you start with NAC there, you start with glycine, what's your, well, I, again, I would start with, well, why right. is that an issue? So huge correlation between glutathione issues and mold exposure. Oh, really? So it doesn't mean people that have glutathione issues have mold exposure, but there's a very high likelihood we're going to find that. Is that um, common in the UK? I know in Florida it's massive. Oh, uh, yeah. And actually, I've worked with a number of clients from Florida. Mm -hmm. And yeah, believe it or not, uh, quite a few of them did suffer Huge. with the mold exposure yeah. because, yeah, if there's been any sustained period of time where you haven't had the dehumidifier on. Yep. I just moved out of a house because of mold. Yeah. Yep. It's definitely a big deal. But yes, huge issue, especially in London. I think the two reasons cause that. One is we've got so many old buildings. There's yeah. buildings that are, that are older than the United States. Right. But also this competitive housing market in which we live where people are paying 1600 a month for a one-bedroom flat, which is in an awful state of disrepair. There's not really much incentive for landlords to take steps. Add to the fact that most people don't realize the impact of drying clothes indoors with the windows closed. And... Well, yeah. Add to the I've fact, never thought of that. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, it, it's not really something everyone is ever exposed to. Yeah. So, we know that there's been 
huge incentives and huge promotion of energy efficiency, which we can very easily see why that's important and the benefits of that. But when you seal up a building with double glazing to ensure that no heat exchange occurs by blocking air movement, you have created a seal to create a highly (laughs) humid, mold-friendly environment in this little space. And suddenly, yeah, we're seeing so many flats in London have have mold issues. Hmm. Super interesting. So your talk today was speaking about the you know, this, this term adrenal fatigue and exhaustion comes up often. And it seems to be, as you mentioned prior to us getting on, that there's a lot of protocols that exist out there, but none of them seem to work. And everyone's got confusion around, do I have adrenal exhaustion, fatigue, and do I have any adrenal issues at all? You seem to have to deal with this a lot. Well, yeah. So, I accidentally ended up being identified at a number of events as an adrenal specialist. And I guess I understand why I ended up talking a lot about the adrenals, but I find the adrenals as a very important part of the system, but certainly not the only part. I don't tend to use the word adrenal fatigue that often, mainly because I think it's actually unhelpful. I recognize that sometimes it's useful to have a term. For example, if people want to find out more information on the subject matter, being able to type two words into Google and then start sifting through the results, it does at least allow them access to information with more ease. But I would pick issue with the way that adrenal fatigue is often promoted as a specific illness in itself Whereas it's just a term to describe a lump of symptoms with which we know there is an adrenal involvement. And that unfortunately sees a lot of people chasing down rabbit holes. What symptoms are you you referring to? So, there's a lot of people in the fitness industry who compete Mm -hmm. after their contest or before their contest. They're like, oh, I have adrenal fatigue or or they're they're burning the candle at both ends. So, what symptoms would you correlate with? Okay. What they propose to be adrenal fatigue. What do you hear? Okay. So, the typical symptoms would be increased sensitivity to light and noise. It would be jumpiness, easily startling. It would be sustained and excessive response responses to a stressor. It would be physical weakness, uh, lack of energy, motivation, brain fog. It would be distorted circadian rhythms, very slow to wake up in the morning, but also very slow to switch off at night. We'll often see this lull in the afternoon where they need their bed, but then come 9 p.m., there's this second wind. They're now fully alert and they often have a two-hour window at the end of the day where they now actually function normally. They're tired, but they're wired at this point. Beyond that, we've got uh, blood pressure and circulation issues, so cold hands and feet, dizziness upon standing, low blood pressure, salt cravings. We may well find increased bruising or bruising that doesn't go away, increased susceptibility to colds, sensitivity to chemicals, the scent of petrol, for example, being a, a great example. So, I could add more, but I guess that's, no, that's, a, that's as a, a reasonable start. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. But you are speculating that may not be adrenal fatigue as typically would be assumed. It may be a, a symptom that is caused by a number of other 
predisposing thing. Well, yeah. And so, in almost all cases, the adrenals will play a frontline yeah. role yeah. in that. And so, it makes perfect sense as to why these unexplained collection of symptoms for which the doctor has no answer, why they have been linked so heavily with the adrenals. Because guess what? Support the adrenals and you'll often see improvements. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's great for those individuals for whom they are getting the responses they're after. But my concern is what about for those individuals that do take the Siberian ginseng or the ashwagandha or the other adaptogens who take the adrenal extracts or the licorice roots and they've added that support and nothing's happened. For them, they're often presented with this idea that this is what adrenal fatigue is and this is how it's treated. So if they don't respond, that can be a very demoralizing place to be because sure. they'll often then be... Yeah, they'll now be resorting to what's been called in the past desperation medicine. They'll now try anything in the hope that it might cure them because nobody seems to understand. I feel that if we were to take a step back and actually look at the physiological steps that occur behind these issues, well, not only can we actually recognize the role of the adrenals, but we can also see that actually the symptoms tend to be mediated by endotoxemia, the movement of bacterial fragments, aka endotoxins, from the gut into the circulation. And that's one of the most devastating inflammatory events that can occur in the human body. It's not an infection. These fragments are no longer live. They cannot infect you. And yet your immune cells, they will scan their molecular barcodes and freak out right at which so, point how is that going to manifest right so just bring that back so just so the listener understands that the way i envision adrenals is they're like a, it's like having a lemon right and they respond every time that you need energy every time something's stressful they're going to respond to mobilize energy with cortisol and when that thing when lemon squeezed you can't squeeze in more lemon these things like you know ashwagandha and uh you know, like you mentioned, uh, maybe licorice root or anything like that, that can give you a little more juice in the lemon, but it's not replenishing it. You need to almost think of like, how am I going to replenish this juice and allow the body to replenish itself? And people are just getting into the state where the, the lemon's dry, right? There's nothing else that's there. So, you're trying to compensate and, and you know, plug some juice back in there, but there's nothing there. So, you're looking at, um, just to kind of give the, the simple analogy that makes sense to a lot of people. And now, so you're looking at, you're getting these stress responses from the inflammation that's exceeding what the body's able to compensate for. So, how do you go about getting rid of these bacteria that exist? So, well, the and this is just, is, it's important for the notes. This, this is just one scenario. I'm yeah. guessing this isn't like perpetual. Everyone doesn't have these bacterial scenarios. Well, so the endotoxins will exist in everyone. Yep. That's a unavoidable, but entirely non-problematic state of play for human beings. Because we all have these trillions of bacterial species in our gut at mm -hmm. any one time. So, because of that, plenty of them are continually dying. And then when they die, that's when endotoxins are formed. So, their presence isn't actually a concern. What is a concern is when they enter the bloodstream. So, that is our, our key function. And I should probably expand a little bit that, yes, the composition of the microbiome can influence the level that exists and equally can influence the rate of immune activity, which will result in them dying more. So, there are factors that will impact the level 
at which they exist in the gut. But now, is, is leaky gut a necessary prerequisite to get these mycotoxins in? Obviously, yes. everyone has them, but is that... Yes, and this is, in many cases, the switch which triggers an inflammatory syndrome. And for many people, that inflammation will cause the migraines. For others, it will cause them eczema. For others, it will cause joint pain. So there's so many ways that it can manifest. But what's fascinating is for those individuals for whom they don't get those symptoms, well, where is the warning sign? Well, there is no warning sign in some cases, or they've become so good at ignoring the warning signs covering up yeah yeah, or uh as in my case uh so good at burying them in physical tension because it turned out that regardless of the storm of uh stress and all of the various stimuli that i could fully acknowledge that human beings might find this stressful never appeared to affect my ability to think clearly or to respond in a logical fashion and thus i at once <laughs> once upon a time would have would have said that i was really good dealing with stress now i would say that i was excellent at burying it burying it in the form of physical tension which comes at a major long-term cost and that's a cost that i did indeed pay eventually took a lot of uh, resolving at a later date but but in any case to go back to this switch this opening up of the gut lining a lot of people talk about leaky gut and it's for good reason linked with alcohol gluten overuse of anti-inflammatory drugs like uh, aspirin paracetamol think you guys have a different name for it but um in any case those factors are very well characterized as opening the gaps between the cells of our gut so in that sense we're talking about paracellular permeability that's important when we see the adrenal issues the way they play out is something very different which is transcellular permeability this is where the cells themselves open themselves up. Oh, interesting. And the reason they do that is to allow in sugar and salt to help this individual survive the stressor that they're about to face. So we'll take it back one step. So when we talk about the adrenal response, it's often described as a one-dimensional pathway whereby we are stressed, We stimulate our adrenal glands, we squeeze that lemon, and we get a bit of juice out in the form of cortisol, which helps us deal with this. But in actual fact, there's two pathways that are being stimulated. One is the hormonal pathway that you mentioned. It's the activation of the adrenal cortex to squeeze out that juice from the lemon. And that's what gives us the cortisol. But the stress response starts right at the top at the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus not only engineers the hormonal cascade that ends up in the stimulation of the adrenal glands, the squeezing of the lemon, but simultaneously is activating the sympathetic nerves. Mm. So yes, we've got a hormonal response, which takes a matter of time to manifest, but we've got a hard-wired neural response where the nerves themselves are instantly now preparing us 
in this present moment. Now, the nerves can help release resources from storage sites, be that fat cells or be that the glycogen stores in our muscles. That's part of what they do. They're also going to activate certain parts of the brain, which help us to maintain vigilance. That's great. But they'll also seek out sugars and salts from the gut. So they'll open up the gut in order to salvage any sugars and salts that may live there. And this is the activation of particular proteins that live on the gut called sugar and glucose link transporters, SGLTs. This is key because at that point, yes, we get the sugar and the salts, but it comes at a cost. And that means these endotoxins, these fragments of dead bacteria can now hitch a ride. Endotoxins in the bloodstream, that's endotoxemia. That is a big immune response waiting to happen, especially so if individuals don't have an effective way to regulate their immune response. For example, what if they're short on vitamin A? That's so important to help regulate the immune response so that it can tolerate a certain level of stimulation. Folate plays a big role there. Vitamin D plays a big role there. Butyrate, a chemical produced by good bacteria in the gut. So the reason I mention that is because whilst there is this unified, universal switch that links the stress response to chronic inflammatory conditions, it doesn't automatically mean that every time you open up your gut, you will now develop adrenal fatigue symptoms. Otherwise, we'd all have adrenal fatigue all of the time. But what it does do is that stress will mean there is now a very relevant opportunity for this inflammatory cascade to begin. Mm -hmm. And so now the next level is all about how does your body handle that inflammation? And there's huge amounts of factors that can play a role there. So walking back a step, does that mean your suggestion is when people are under stress, we're increasing magnesium, vitamin A, and vitamin D as kind of primary interventional strategies? Is that a blanket statement or is that just too general? I would say it's too general because whilst they're likely to help in all cases, again, there's plenty of reasons why people might respond badly to folates. That's going to drive methylation very reliably and that should help. 600 different chemical reactions depend on an ongoing supply of methyl donors. But it can also activate parts of the immune system while silencing others. That can be fantastic for some people. It can be quite an inflammatory storm for others. So that in the early stages is tossing a coin. In the long term, it's generally a very, very sensible strategy. Equally, vitamin D. Yes, we can get people outside and there's always a lot of good reasons to do that above and beyond the vitamin D. But what if they have a blockage on their vitamin D receptor? They're never going to get the benefits of vitamin D. Would that be genetic or that be... Normally, it's microbial. Um, so we can see evidence for plenty of bacterial infections, plenty of viral infections, Epstein-Barr being a perfect example, whereby these microbes have never developed any effective strategy to deal with certain antimicrobial peptides, such as cathelicidin, beta defensin. These are vitamin D dependent. In other words, if vitamin D is active, they don't have a chance of surviving. But what they have evolved to do is to block the receptor and thus improve their chances of survival. So what it sounds like to me is that just as you said when this podcast began, that it's all related, right? Well, it's this is the thing. And so it's, and on one hand, 
I'm very well aware that this makes me one of the more annoying guests. No, 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 no. There is very rarely going to be any answers that I can give people. I think you've just Um, explained it perfectly. I mean, it was so clear and so well articulated. And now I I know we're going to go down this path of potentially talking about inflammation because that seems to be where you led this. And now would inflammation be kind of the third line of defense or would it be the place you would address first? Well, again, so one of the the, the key underpinning messages of my talk yesterday is that it does work as a cycle. So while stress can trigger the inflammation through those mechanisms that I've mentioned and also through adrenaline receptors on white blood cells. And also through affecting vagal tone, which then leads your white blood cells into a highly reactive state. So there's multiple ways through inflammation can be driven by stress. But the irony here is that stress itself can be driven by inflammation. We know that when cytokines rise, we will automatically see activation at the hypothalamus. We'll see automatic and direct activation of the pituitary and at the adrenal cortex itself. So every layer of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is being activated during an inflammatory state. There's certain exceptions, but that's a, a reasonable statement overall. So we've got this scenario where stress drives inflammation and inflammation drives stress, but that's not even it. Because what if they have poor mitochondrial function? Mitochondrial function is vitally important for the firing of the brain is if we just take one example because otherwise we'll end up down this rabbit hole all day prefrontal cortex is as the name might indicate at the front of our brain and it is the area that is associated with executive function and what separates us from other mammals and this is an area that allows us to plan to think expansively to consider timelines and it's also very involved in regulation of mood and how we feel What's also vital is the prefrontal cortex, especially the left side, is vital for regulating our limbic response. So by uh, our limbic response, I mean the response of our amygdala and the hypothalamus. Those are the key structures, or at least in this context. So not suppressing them, but regulating them. And what happens then when somebody has low energy? Well, the prefrontal cortex is one of the highest densities of mitochondria in the body. It's going to suffer more in low energy states than any other area. Consequently, these are individuals that A, not only will feel awful and won't be able to think clearly and suffer from horrendous brain fog, but also they're going to be hyperreactive to normal stresses. So normal life now is going to be extremely challenging and is going to see them continually mobilize. We need mitochondria to maintain normal function of all neurons because that's what mops up the communicating ions, the calcium ions that the brain uses to communicate. The mitochondria serve as a sponge for those. So when they're not working or when too many of them are dysfunctional, suddenly we see dysregulated firing so much more input going into areas that control the stress response. We're amplifying stress, which was probably too high already. So energy further adds to the picture. And guess what? Energy signaling is absolutely ruined whenever we see sustained inflammation, not only on shutting down entry into the mitochondria, 
at a, a particular junction that uses carbohydrate products. An enzyme called PDH is always shut down in inflammation. And that's what we see when people get the flu, why they get aches. That shutdown results in an alternative energy process called glycolysis and all the lactic acid that comes with it. But I digress. That's one way that inflammation can affect energy. It can also kill NAD. So again, this hugely important molecule that connects up the Krebs cycle, the middle stage of energy production to the last and final stage at the electron transport chain of the mitochondria. That's no longer there. Inflammation kills leptin sensitivity. So your brain thinks it's on low energy and downregulates its behavior as a consequence. So I know I went off on one there, but what I wanted to convey is this continual cycle, this continual interaction whereby not only can stress and inflammation shut down energy, but energy itself and the problems with producing it or energy signaling can result in substantially increased stress reactions. And suddenly it doesn't often matter what was the trigger that pushed this cycle into overdrive. The only thing that matters at this point is what's going to break that cycle. This is all stuff you can tell from the organic acid. So I wouldn't say it's so clear as saying the organic acids will take it away. I would always start by, yeah, I would go after the low-hanging fruit. So the organic acid test will always throw me a bounty of low-hanging fruit. On top of that, then I'm looking at sleep. I'm looking at a basic digestive performance and any other obvious symptoms. And then let's investigate them. When do they occur? What seems to help? What seems to hinder? What relationships can we spot? And there's always a lot of things that are actually very obvious. So I'll put those into place first. And on average, from one round, I'll see about one in six people. I'm talking about my chronic patients here. So about one in six people show a stratospheric improvement. I'll see about two out of the same six show no improvement at all. And then those in the middle will often report back that, okay, this is better. That pain's gone. This symptom no longer occurs. But you know what? All in all, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm better. So yeah, we can measure improvements, but it hasn't translated into a different life for them yet. Awesome. I love that you're saying that because most docs come in and they say, hey, you know, it's hormones. It's everyone's going after that. And what I know and you know is hormones is a downstream effect to all of these, you know, foundational health things. But most docs don't take the time to go through these foundational pathways that we've just described. They don't go through the organic acid test. They don't even often, they'll go to blood work, straight to blood work, go your test is low, your estrogen is high, whatever it is, you need these hormones. Why? Right? That's the question that people should be asking is, well, yes, my test is low or yes, my estrogen is high or whatever, right? What are my cholesterol is out of whack or yes, my, and my cortisol is high, but why? And that's such a beautiful conversation, man, because if our listeners can understand and even personally myself, like I'd love to understand how all these things interact to the level you do, because I don't think that hormones are the, are the way to go for most people, right? Most people are, are, you know, I had someone come to me last week and say, hey man, I, my testosterone is 500. Should I look at supplementing? I was like, I want to be eight. I go, well, have you optimized your, your micronutrients? Have you optimized your body? Oh, well, no. Well, why the hell you can take testosterone, right? Like if you're at 
30, maybe, right? Then let's do that. But if you're like somewhere in the healthy range, there's so many things you can do foundationally, like you're saying, optimize the fatty acid profiles, optimize the, the micronutrients, the minerals, the vitamins, et cetera. And that's really how you're going about this with the organic acid. Well, yeah. And I think the, the testosterone issue is just a perfect example because, okay, let's take an example when it is particularly low. There can be a multiple reasons why that is. Is it because of poor production? If so, where in that chain of events are we right. seeing the dysfunction? So let's go up and check the pituitary hormones. Is it getting stimulation there? If not, why not? Is that due to poor signaling into the pituitary? So do we look at dopamine issues? Is that a methylation thing? Then equally, when it comes down to, let's say that there is sufficient pituitary stimulation, we've checked the luteinizing hormone and it's fine. Well, is it a case of a poor production from the testes? Or are the testes doing a great job of producing it, but it's simply leaking into estrogen or it's leaking into DHT? So in some cases, you can get these individuals who've seen a doctor, they've had their testosterone measured, but they didn't have SHB tested. They didn't have estrogen measured because... They're a man, so estrogen is not important, right? Yeah, check out uh, one of my uh, bodybuilding friends who uh, quite a few years ago called me up and he said, Mark, I think we need to have a talk because uh, I've just come off a cycle and uh, I was watching EastEnders, so a soap. It's yep. uh, very low IQ watching. Right. Um, just, and, uh, <laughs> and it made me cry. <laughs> I think I think I might be in bad. Yeah, I think I need some help. Exactly, and his estrogen was twice as high as it should be, which isn't spectacularly out, but it does very adequately demonstrate that small differences in estrogen can make a huge difference in in men, and uh, and it's a, a good example. I, I thought, well, he knew that something was up because his behaviour was so different to how he was used to feeling, but. What about if this had happened really slowly? What about if this was an organic issue that had manifested so slowly over years? Just thought it became who you are. Yeah. yeah. Whatever's normal for you is normal for you. So, and that's obviously quite an important role for me as practitioner. When I speak to people, you know, whether we're talking about these sort of symptoms related to hormones, whether we're talking about sleep. <laughs> and when I first started down this route 13 years ago, I might ask somebody, what's your sleep like? Oh, it's fine. Compared to what? Exactly that. And I fell for that a, a couple of times. Uh, and uh, yeah, the important thing is, okay, well, when do you go to sleep? How long does it take you to fall asleep? How many times do you wake up? Are you waking up refreshed? So we need to build a full picture when they say, oh, you know, nothing unusual, three or four times over the course of the night. Yeah. How many times do you wake into urinate? That's no, just, just, just the usual, I guess, once or twice. Of course, my job as practitioner is to say, okay, whilst that's not unusual to hear, that is absolutely not what should be happening. Right. And that is going to harm your progress. So that's a great topic because what percentage of people in the audience today would you say, or yesterday, would you say, wake up to pee in the middle of the night? It's got to be 60 or 70%. It's got to be high. And I guess I'm entirely unqualified to even make a guess because well, I only get to see the population that actually come to see me. So it's right. quite a self-selecting group. Well, so someone asked, I was at one of the talks and somebody asked, and, and I'd say at least 60% of the hands in the audience went up. So what's happening? Well, I always look at it in two ways from the bat. So one, clearly their bladder is filling 
when it shouldn't be. There should be a sufficient release of hormones to hold the fluids in the body whilst we sleep, antidiuretic hormone. But equally, we want to look at the mineral balance, especially sodium, potassium, magnesium. Maybe they could be playing a role. And you could even take a look at uh, liver proteins that allow for osmotic pressure to remain regulated. So, yeah, hydration, the ability to retain fluids where they should be retained. That's obviously one very worthwhile avenue to explore. But also, there's the principle of, well, were you truly bursting for a pee? Or was this actually just that little nuisance? Just continually agitating you until you think, do you know what, fair enough, I've been <laughs> staring at the ceiling for half an hour, I'm just going to deal with this. If that's the case, then well, you're clearly not in a deep sleep in the first place. You are not experiencing the paralysis that we would expect and want to see during the sleep. So in that instance, yes, I'm generally looking at both of those factors because clearly they're interacting with a particular metric. How many times are you ping? Right. So perhaps mechanistically then, I won't speculate, but I'll let you talk about it. Mechanistically, what would be happening in someone's sleep to prevent them to be getting in those states? Like what are the typical things you see that are contributing to shallow sleep or mm. insignificant sleep? Well, I would always start at the front line. So the hypothalamus will determine whether you are going to be awake or whether you're going to be asleep. So, and it will do so by counting the votes for vigilance versus counting the votes for rest. Now, there are certain That's a great times, way to put it. That's a really good way to put it. Well, it's, it's working for us, but it can only work for us on the information that it receives. So, that's why there isn't just one thing that will help with insomnia, or as is often more of an issue in life, slightly worse sleep than we would like, which is a form of insomnia, but it's one that we can solve with four or five or six coffees and uh, <laughs> Speaking of maybe which. an aspirin. And, uh, yeah, and of course, it kind of works, but at a cost long term. Yep. Yeah, so, so, so going back to the hypothalamus, it's counting these votes based on, on the inputs it's receiving. So in that instance, does your limbic system detect a danger signal? That's the only reason it's going to remain awake. Now, in that instance, it's going to be tempting to take a stress-centric view of the whole thing. And by that, I mean cluttering out all the emotional stresses of your life and taking deep dives into the inner work. And I do think that that is very important. And I think that the way that our civilization sees it as, here's people who have a stress issue and we're going to slap a label on it maybe we'll call it ptsd or we'll call it gad or whatever d we're calling it and everyone else is okay when it's clearly a spectrum and there's clearly a lot of people who are suffering from a lot of stress issues but they hide it very well thus their doctor cannot fathom that actually these individuals do need their additional support. But I digress. What's particularly interesting is, as I've mentioned before, the way that nutritional shortages, magnesium being a perfect example, means that we are not able to dampen our responses to glutamate in an effective manner. Meaning that any glutamate that is already in the brain 
And let's be clear, it's a very helpful and important chemical for sure. normal brain function. But let's say you have some inflammation. Inflammation and raised glutamate are very tightly linked. Add the magnesium shortage. You are now super sensitive to that glutamate because your NMDA receptors are now super responsive to it. Add the mitochondrial issues. The downstream consequence of those NMDA receptors being activated means that they send huge amounts of firing. And this domino role means that whispers of stress end up being a huge screaming chorus by the time it reaches your hypothalamus. In those instances, you don't have a fair chance of sleeping properly unless you can build up such a large number of votes for rest, for sleep. So in this point, the only option you have is sleeping pills because that will, I mean, let's face it, a ballium is effective. That's, that's the deciding vote. Well, yeah, because now you're casting a huge amount of votes in favor of rest. You've now adequately competed with all of that uh, screaming chorus for vigilance. Alternatively, you could simply do what most people do and just accept that you wake up after four very unsatisfying hours of sleep and thus your sleep debt builds and it builds and it builds. And with a building sleep debts, well, we can actually count that. The body keeps count. Adenosine levels will rise. Adenosine acts as a vote for sleep at the hypothalamus. So yes, in many cases, people can only get to sleep if they've had a terrible night the night before because they need that adenosine. They need the sleep dead and the sleep drive to counter the excessive votes for vigilance. So as you might imagine, I would much rather, let's just deal with the vigilance and let's actually right. deal with that both from a physical perspective, which is my area of expertise, but also if the physical support isn't doing the job, well, let's actually send them to somebody who's skilled in dealing with that and unpacking what might be going on because it's a very, very common, interesting pattern that people that come to see me are stressed Emotional. out of their mind, right. but they don't think they're stressed. Because it's just their norm, right? Whatever's normal for you is normal for you. Right. So I, I think sometimes just taking a heart rate variability measurement could be a really useful starting point because now we can see, okay, will you live at this level that other individuals may well only reach after 90 minutes of intense cardiovascular exercise. That will put them in the same state. So too, being actually chased by a knife-wielding maniac, they will now reach the same state. But your sympathetic nervous system is continually working in the same way all the time. And as soon as we've actually been able to quantify that, it's starts becoming a lot easier to build a picture of, well, why is that? And that's obviously the key question before resolving it. So I am a nutritional therapist. My specialist area is the physiology. But I think just as important in my life as a practitioner, just as important as being able to know when something's going to work, it's important to know when it's not going to work. And I'm very clear with the people I work with, what I think will work and what I don't think it will work at the current time as things stand. And yeah, if they're 
sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive. There's a lot of things that simply won't work. Don't expect your body to invest in a strong immune response, strong enough to clear out microbes, undesirable microbes from the gut. Don't expect that to happen if your body is focused on surviving out the day. It's not going to deal with housework whilst you have a lion stalking you, ready to pounce. Man, you're so good at this. Now, I have one question that remains, and this is completely a self-interest, completely off topic from what we're talking about. But on your website, you've got some information about oxalates. And that's kind of a big topic in my world right now. There's a lot of people bringing up this conversation around like, should or should we not be eating vegetables? So, I noticed you had some information on there. I'd love for you to just talk to us about oxalates because there's not very many people having a great conversation about that right now. Cool. Well, luckily, I love talking about oxalates. So, oxalates are a food chemical that's uh, naturally present in a whole load of foods. And spinach, Swiss chard, rhubarb are exceptionally high. But there's also high levels that we'll find in a lot of nuts, uh, sweet potato being another one. We'll even find them in whole grains. We'll find them in a number of beans. Cocoa, unfortunately, being one of them. So there's actually an oxalate calculator on my website where you can check the oxalate content of various foods. But these plants, weirdly enough, have not evolved to serve as food for us. They do provide an excellent source of nourishment in many cases, but they have evolved to produce these oxalates, these food chemicals, as a natural pesticide. This will discourage predators from eating them because it means they can't and survive. So the good news, though, is that humans have counter-evolved to deal with oxalates. And we've got multiple systems within the gut to neutralize and eliminate them. So in theory, humans don't need to worry about oxalates. And I suspect that for the majority of the population, they just don't need to worry about them. Now, I can go into detail should you so wish, but the takeaway is that if digestive problems occur, suddenly we may well not deal with the oxalates the way that we should. And at this point, they will become a problem. They can now be absorbed and they can now start being deposited in various areas of the body. For decades, mainstream medical science has had this kidney-centric focus on oxalates in that oxalates are a risk for kidney stones, and that's pretty much their focus. But we know that actually they can form crystals and stones in multiple other areas. So these inflammatory crystals may well influence eczema or psoriasis or, or skin issues. They may well flare up at joint pain, which could then go on to be diagnosed as arthritis. But they can also just play this ongoing role to egg on and exaggerate whatever inflammatory conditions are already present. So in many cases, yes, we'll see that manifest as raised glutamates. We'll see that manifest as a poor calcium control in the, in the brain and suddenly we're seeing anxiety, we're seeing poor sleep. So what's fascinating and frustrating about oxalates is that all I can expect when I see a test marker with very high oxalates is this individual does not have a fair chance in controlling inflammation. And I'm very much expecting to see multiple inflammatory issues. And sure enough, I almost always see them. Incredible. Now, it's difficult for him being to know if they can break yeah. them down, absorb them or not. 
is it the type of thing that you suggest most people, if you're conscious of, about it enough to just do your best to avoid it or minimize it? Or what's your thought? So I would, surprisingly enough, just get tested. Oh, through organic, so, um, acid organic acid test includes oh, wow. oxalic acid as one of the markers. It also contains glycolic acid and glyceric acid, which again maybe will uh, do well to skip over the, the ins and outs of what those mean. But those will indicate if the liver itself is actually forming oxalates inside the body. So, what were those markers? Glyceric acid and glycolic acid. So, the glycolic acid actually does exist on the oxalate pathway, whereas glyceric acid is a representation. It's, it's loosely attached to the oxalate pathway. But these are signs that the individual may be suffering from hyperoxaluria syndromes, whereby based on A, a genetic disposition, and B, a shortage of certain cofactors that allow for better processing of these precursors. Well, now they can end up producing oxalates in their own body, which of course can be another source. It's much less common. And equally, there's varying degrees in which we can see this. There's acute hyperoxaluria syndromes, which will almost always be picked up by doctors with early screening with, uh, with children in their early years. But there's also the scenarios whereby we see a little bit more production of oxalates than we should be seeing. And that's the sort of individual I'm likely to encounter. But hey, if that's been going on for 15 years, then that's... What would be some of the symptoms? So all those inflammatory issues that I mentioned, yeah. when it comes to oxalates, looking at inflammation. Yeah. Very interesting because in this in this keto and carnivore space, like there's a lot of people kind of just going after the oxalates, and you know there's something there. There's meat on the bone, but I don't know how uh, extensive or how serious people should be about excluding them from their diet. Well, yeah, and it's it is an interesting one because as I mentioned earlier, I'm very unqualified to make any predictions as to. How common is this issue mm -hmm. in the wider population? How common is it in any other population other than the one that I work with? Which is self-selecting. It's people who come to see me and they haven't been helped elsewhere. So I did a survey in 2017 where I simply tracked 30 individuals that had came in and, and tracked their progress over the 10 months that followed. But one of the things I tracked was what was the rate of particular issues that they were facing? And over 90% of them had oxalate issues on their test. So certainly in the population that I deal with, the so-called unhelpables, which I'm not sure how accurate a tag that really is, as hopefully our conversation has helped to uh, yeah, sure. uh, explain. But uh, in that group, we are seeing a massive proportion of them with oxalate issues, but not all of them. Do you have any foundational supplements or things you take on a day-to-day -day basis to suggest everyone takes just as a foundation for health? If I had to pick three, it would be a multivitamin, a good one, vitamin C, and magnesium. What dosages? For I C would typically go with uh, 500 milligrams of magnesium in absorbable form before bedtime. And that is a life changer for some people. Mm -hmm. And it's actually one of the few items that I'd be comfortable recommending in an environment like this because yeah. it 
doesn't tend to suffer from the same issues that other supplements have, which is whereby it's kind of good for some people and it can cause problems in others. Yes, there's some people who don't actually take up magnesium so effectively from the intestines and may get some loose bowels, but that's an inconvenience, which then they can start looking into why that's happening. But yes, magnesium sleep quality is a very easy metric. And that is the most effective and reliable way to transition non-believers into believers. Those individuals that ask me, yeah, but you know, supplements, they don't really like work though, do they? And I said, well, look, why don't you take the magnesium and tell me if your sleep improves? I'd say about 90% of people will then send me a sensational text message. Should everyone be taking methylation support? No. Some people have totally adequate methylation. Some people may even have hypermethylation. Hmm. I very rarely see that. It is very common that in inflammatory issues we'll see hypomethylation. But there are, I said, the two concerns. One is, well, if there's some of the individuals that don't need it, then we're actually adding interventions in that are going to have some potentially unnecessary effects. And mainly if they are suffering from inflammatory issues, it's impossible that there's not going to be impacts on stress, on energy, on multiple other areas of the metabolism. Why is that important? Because methylation so often, when you start it up, we're going to see impacts on immune function. We're going to see impacts on detoxification. I'm not confident that a lot of individuals, especially in the early stage, are yet ready to tolerate that. So it disappoints a lot of people that come to see me who say, right, I know my methylation's bad. I've done my gene panel. And I have to tell them, well, A, your gene panel is not telling us what's going on right now. It's telling us what you're vulnerable to. Right. There's multiple other factors that will play a role. So maybe you don't need it. But B, do we think for a second that they currently have a fair chance of responding to the methylation and getting the benefits that they should? And in the early stages, the answer is normally no, they are not ready. How about fish oil? Should everyone take fish oil? Um, If they're eating oily fish regularly, then I wouldn't say there's much need for that. I certainly don't see any differences in people's outcome versus taking additional fish oil versus not. It does seem to be, based on the results I'm seeing, as long as you've got enough, then you're all good. And beyond that, there is a very steep law of diminishing returns. So that's why- taking too much. Yeah, as in, I don't really see many negatives. Um, I'm potentially concerned if it's particularly high dose and these are unstable oils that are then going to need vitamin E to quench the free radicals that they end up generating and thus they're now draining reserves elsewhere. That's a potential concern, but mainly it's that I don't see much of a benefit above and beyond- the basic level that they need. Merrick, you're very good at this. Thank you very much. Very, very good. Grateful for your time. time. Where can our listeners find you? So I am at www.marrickdoyle.com. So D-O-Y-L-E. D-O-Y-L-E. That's the one. We'll link to that in the show notes. Great. And I've recently joined a website called Instagram. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah, you might not have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I try to use that thing as little as possible, but it, it's definitely a reality in our world, isn't it? Well, yeah. Luckily, I have an entire Instagram social media team to help me with that. It's uh, called my wife. Yes. So, uh, 
shout out to my wife. <laughs> um, and yes, I'm at Marrick Doyle Nutrition. Very cool. So thank you very much for your time. And like I said, our audience can absolutely love this. And that's a wrap, boys and girls, ladies and gents. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're having an amazing day, amazing week, amazing month, amazing year. Life is great. And I hope each and every one of you is thriving in whatever you love to do right now. Smile. Enjoy the obstacles. Enjoy every moment of your life. You may not be here tomorrow. We're so blessed to be able to have this opportunity to reside in this earth. Hopefully, spiritual beings having a human experience. I know I'm enjoying my human experience as often as I can, not dwelling on the small stuff and truly trying to make the world a better place during the time that I'm here. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Merrick Doyle. If you did, leave us a review, share it with at least one person you know that will love it and benefit from it. And I know this one is massive as far as who should be hearing this information. Really, really great information here about nutrition and really how to look at your body objectively rather than being dogmatic about your nutrition. If you guys love it, I would appreciate you send us a message. And if you have any questions for Ashley and I on the Q&A episodes, go ahead and fire over to Instagram and go to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast Instagram page. One, follow us and comment on some of our stuff and tell us how much you love us because we love to hear from you. Or you can go to Muscle Intelligence on Facebook as well and join that community. And we have a lot of interaction going on there about my programs, about my podcast and coaching and such going on in there. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in a body you love. And I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.